Well, good morning. This is going to be a little different having people in front. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are new, right? I mean, we got, <clears throat> we got a new projector, so we got a nice crisp uh, screen, and we got a new layout. I even got new glasses. We're all ready for all kinds of new things. So welcome, welcome. My name's Ross Gilbert, and uh, <clears throat> if you're uh, just joining us here for the first time, I'm uh, really excited to welcome you to be a part of our series on the book of Ephesians uh, as we're continuing through here. Um, we, we love this book and we chose this book because it really does kind of lay out what the heart of church is to be about and what God wants to envision for us as a church, both as the individual, but also as a group. And so we, we kind of made the theme for this here, the, the, the mystery of Christ in you. And what was so good about this is not just Christ in you, the individual, although that's true, it's Christ in you, the plural. So if Paul were Southern gospel, he would say Christ in y'all, right? So that's really what he's trying to get across, this idea that Christ resides in all of us and we get to experience Jesus through one another. So we're going to continue on uh, and kind of wrap up this section. This section here, beginning in verse 3, verse 3 to verse 14, is... What some scholars said is the longest run-on sentence in the whole Bible. So it's good to know that Paul wasn't great at grammar because I'm not great at grammar. And so it's just this long, keep going, no periods in there whatsoever. But it's been referred to as the treasure chest of the New Testament. The, some have likened this to reading this passage is like Christmas morning when you get to open up the, the presents and discover all kinds of gifts that God's given to us. And so we've discovered some of the gifts. And back in, in verse three, it talks about how God has, has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings that he's chosen us. That he really what that means is that he sees you. He knows everything about you. He knows all but your story and your your struggles and your past mistakes and your failures. He knows what people have done to you. He knows what you've done to others. He knows everything about it. There's nothing you can hide from God. So there's no point even trying to. But you don't need to. Because he's taken all that into account and he says, I love you. I love you. I desire you more than I desire life itself. Isn't that the truth? Because the, the sacrifice he made was his own life so that he, he and I, he and you could be one. And we saw that this desire from the very beginning was that we would be holy and blameless. A holy and blameless that isn't about behavior, but in terms of who you are, your identity. And so it's not that you're now going to off and achieve this standard of holy and blameless, but he's rather made us. He's, he's created us to be that. And that we were predestined. And we saw this predestined isn't about your salvation, but rather predestined towards a plan. And God's predestined plan, his plan from the moment that you were saved, was the adoption of sons. And, and we also saw there that the adoption of the sons is not referring to adoption as we understand it in the 21st century. It's not where you're exiting one family to join another family. Instead, how did you join the family of God? You were born into it, right? We were born again. And so you were literally born into the family of God. So this adoption of sons is different in first century uh, Roman culture. This adoption of sons was referring to sort of what Marco was talking about, that sweet, sweet 15, that sweet 16, that, that moment where we become now an adult. And so this idea of adoption of sons is something we look forward to. It's graduation day. It's 
Paul goes on to more detail in Romans 8, 23, and he says it's the redemption of our bodies. And so we look forward to getting a brand new body, a brand new earth suit, a spiritual body that no longer is mortal like this body here. And so we look forward to that. And so, so look at this, what he's saying, you've been predestined to that, that God has guaranteed it. He's going to make it happen that you're going to make it to graduation day. And so that's really good for people like Marco, who always wondered if they're going to graduate grade eight. See, Peter lied to you. It's people in the front row and flow because it doesn't matter where flow sits. I'm going to find flow. So. All right. Um, then we saw that that God has done something incredible with this idea of in verse seven that he's redeemed us in order to forgive us. And we saw that those are really together. They're, they're very much connected, but they are two separate steps. That the idea here that God redeemed us, he ransomed us, that basically you and I had a debt. We had an enormous debt, a debt that was too big for us to pay, a debt based on all of our sins. And it was owed to the enemy, to Satan. But along comes Jesus and he purchases that debt. He redeemed the debt for us. He bought us out from under the bookie we saw so that we no longer owe Satan, but now we owe Jesus. But what does he do with that debt? Instead of now turning around and leveraging and using that debt against us, what he decides to do is release the debt. And that's literally what the word forgiveness means. It means to send away, to release us of that debt so that we don't owe God anything anymore. Your debt's been gone. He's completely been forgiven. He's never going to use it against you in your relationship with him. That's a good word. So I'm going to say amen. You don't have to say amen, but I'm going to say amen because that's a good word. Amen. Uh, we'll see how it goes on. Make it better. And then last time we were together, we saw that God's plan in this passage is to, to sum everything up into Jesus Christ, to, to bring everything under him into this one family in Christ. And it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, black or white, slave or free, if, if you're like the Ottawa Senators or if you're a Leaf fan, it doesn't matter. Everyone gets together and we get to be in Christ. And that phrase in Christ has been a, a central theme to this whole passage. 11 times in these 12 verses in Christ or in him is, is, is stated over and over and over again. And what is Paul doing? He's emphasizing a couple things. One, that it's not about what you do. It's not about what you accomplish. It's not about what, what you're going to bring to the table. But he's also emphasizing that this relationship in Jesus is our source. He is the, the power. And we're going to see more of that this morning, I hope. But, but I love this idea here that Watchman Nee talks about. He, he kind of is stressing this idea that, that the ultimate gift that God has given us is Jesus himself. And so Watchman Nee, he says that, you know, when we pray for peace, God doesn't actually give you peace. He says he gave you Jesus, who is your peace. And when you pray asking, God, give me more patience, God won't give you more patience. He says, he gave you Jesus, who is your patience. And if you pray for more wisdom or more love or more power or more compassion, again, he won't give you those things. He gave you Jesus, who is all those things. Everything we need, all of these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are in Christ, where you are right now, available to us right now. And so Paul says, because of all this, our only natural response 
is to praise him. Blessed be God. Praised be God who has blessed us, who has given to us all of these incredible spiritual blessings. Maybe the best way to summarize this is what Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six. He sums it up best when he says this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Do you see why Paul in this passage uses words like lavished and freely bestowed? We put them up on the screen here. According to his kind intention and the riches of his grace. Do you see the overwhelming nature of this gift? Well, that's what I hope we get to experience this morning. We get to experience this great gift that he's lavished and blessed us with. The gift of Jesus Christ in and through us. See, I want you to understand that salvation is way more than just getting your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven one day. That's such a a narrow, small-minded understanding of what God's given to us. See, he's done more than just to rescue from your sins, although that was true. What he did and what he really needed to do was to bless us, to give us new life. Because that was our problem. See, salvation, I have this up on the screen here. Salvation is about God rescuing us from death by giving us his life so that we can live with, in, and through him for eternity. That's what it's about. Just about hanging out with Jesus, finding life in Jesus as we we hang around with one another. And, And so really that's what we're hoping to understand more of this idea of Christ living in us this morning. So let's read our passage and pray that the Holy Spirit's going to give us insight and understanding as we kind of wrap up this section. We're going to read verses 11 to 14. You can follow along on the screen here. So Paul begins, he says, In him also we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what another rich passage here. And as we study it and look at it and sort of break it down, Lord Jesus, would you do what only you can do, which is to impart life to this message so that we leave here this morning, not with more Bible knowledge and more intellectual understanding, but with a a deeper faith, a deeper trust, a deeper awareness and understanding that it's no longer I, it's no longer up to me, but rather what you're wanting to do in and through me. And so be the teacher. Speak through me, lead me, guide me, say whatever you want to say, but then take your truth and make it real to each and every one of us. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so the structure of this passage is kind of interesting to me. It's these four verses, the first two verses, Paul's referring to himself, but in the plural. So you know, it could be, I was looking at, maybe as he's talking about him and the apostles, but I think mainly he's talking about the Jews. And then 
as, as a whole, and then he's going to transition to applying it to you also, the Gentiles, who would make up the majority of the readers here in the book of Ephesus. So it's this idea of that God has come to us, and this is what he's done, but guess what? It also applies to you as well. And so he's going to sort of repeat some of these things. And so the application or the, the, the impact is going to be for all of us. So rather, I think we're going to try to do, well, before I go on to that, don't miss that. This idea here that what, what Paul's saying, that what God's given to me is also true of you. See, I think sometimes what happens is we get in this this idea or this mindset, there's levels to Christianity. There's levels of greatness. And if I could use this illustration of a salary cap in the sporting world, right, where you have all kinds of different players get paid different salaries and so forth, sometimes we kind of approach our, our faith and our standing with God in different ways. So, for example, there's these Christians like the Apostle Paul and, and Peter and John, and these guys are the top tier. These are like the, the max contract type of people that, you know, we give everything we need to these people because they're going to sort of, you know, lead the way. These are the superstars of the faith. And then we got people in the, the, the second tier, and these are really high, you know, flyers, right? We got the, the Billy Grahams and the Mother Teresas and the Arlas, and, you know, we got these people here. And, and so, you know, they're like a mid-level exception, right? They're, they're not quite, you know, max contracts, but they're above average. And then, then you got some other people here, and, you know, they're more like veteran minimum sort of thing, right? You know, people like Peter, like Flo, right? You know, they're, they're getting paid, but not much more than the minimum. And, uh, you know, they're, but they're good. They're, they're role players that fill out the roster, right? And then you get other people. They're, you know, good enough to be in the league, but they never dress. They just sort of sit in the press box, people like Jeremy and so forth, right? So, you know, they're on the team, but they didn't quite make the game that day, right? And so we've kind of, you know, evaluate one another based on where do I slot in in terms of these standings? And the reality is it's all flat, that, that there aren't levels to your greatness because it isn't about you and what you've done. It's all about what Jesus has done and what Jesus has done for the Apostle Paul, for the Apostle John, for Billy Graham, for Arla, even for Jeremy is the same. And that's remarkable to me. So we want to kind of study this passage and see what is it that God's done for all of us? What has he given to all of us for Jew, for Gentile, for apostle, for non-apostle? And so what we're going to do is we're going to try and break down the passage and kind of look at four key phrases. And then when we're done, hopefully we'll be able to put it all back together and see how it all fits. Does that make sense? So the first phrase that we want to look at is this phrase here, we have obtained an inheritance. That's how it's translated in the, the New American Standard one. And, and really that phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, is all from one Greek word. It is a doozy of a word that I'm not even going to bother trying to pronounce. Right? It's just, but it's a great word. It's an incredible word. But there's, there's a couple different ways that you could translate this word. And so when you kind of look at different translations of the Bible, you'll see that they've, they've translated it differently. So one translation that could be used is this idea that we've been made a heritage. Or another way to look at it is, is that we are the, the inheritance, meaning that we're the treasure, that we're God's treasure, we're God's inheritance. And that would be an appropriate way to translate it based on how Paul wrote it, the word. And what that would say is that, that God's reward, God's treasure is cat. It's Paul and Jen. That's his treasure. 
And there's support for that understanding. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 17, God speaking of what's to come, he says, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as man spares his own son who serves him. That you and I have become God's possession, his reward. Why did he go to the cross? So that he could have us. That was his desire. So that, that he wouldn't just be him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wanted a family. He says, I need to have a Dale. That's what I'm after. Um, that's what I'm hoping to experience. And so he's brought all of us together in this. In Matthew 13, 44 to 46, Jesus talks about these two parables. The, the, the parable, the, the treasure found in the field where the man goes and sells all that he has that he might buy the field in order to have the treasure. Or the, the merchant, upon finding one pearl of great value, sells all that he has that he could have that one pearl. You have to understand that you and I in that passage were the treasure. We're that one pearl of great value because Jesus is the one that gave everything he had for us. And so it would be true to understand that you and I are that treasure. We're that one pearl that we're his inheritance. We're his reward. But I don't think that's what Paul's getting at in this passage. See, I think the other translation that we have obtained or we've received in inheritance is a better translation because the context of the passage. Paul's listing all of our gifts, all of our treasures, what God's given to us. And so I think it fits the better concept, context here. And again, there's all kinds of passages that talk about this, that we have an inheritance, something that belongs to us. What's interesting about this, this idea, this inheritance, is he talks about you've already been given it, but you will open it. You will receive it. And so this idea here is that we've been given a down payment on this inheritance. Now, before we understand what the inheritance is, let's kind of illustrate what that looks like and what that means to get this down payment to have what we already own. It's sort of like when you buy a house and you buy a house and it's your house and you put a down payment, but you haven't yet quite moved into it. But it's your house. It belongs to you. The money's down. Everything's been signed over. You're just waiting to move in. That's essentially what God's done here. You've been given the house. You've been given the inheritance. You've got a piece of it, a down payment. But we're going to see more of it as it comes. So what is the inheritance? Well, it's what's coming to us. In the Old Testament, this idea of an inheritance was always pictured to this land that God was going to give the promised land to the Jews. And so this was going to be their inheritance, that it was going to be theirs forever and ever and ever. And that's how it was portrayed. But for you and I in the new covenant, we've got something way better than a piece of real estate. Way better than just a nice house sitting on the coast, you know, overlooking the sea. We've got something way better than anything material. We've got something that's waiting for us on the other side of eternity, where there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And with that, a new body. A, a body that is free from the flesh, from sin, where there's no more sorrows, no more tears, no more frustrations, no more misunderstandings, no more pain, no more hurt, no more lies, where we're going to begin to see ourselves. We're going to begin to see one another for who we are. But maybe the best thing is you're going to get to see Jesus face to face. 
No longer is there going to be, I think, I believe, I hope, everything's going to come to fruition. You and I are going to be able to walk with Jesus and talk with Jesus as we walk and talk with one another today. How cool would that be? And so that's coming. That's, that's the inheritance to come. The down payment that God's given to us in the meantime is the person of his Holy Spirit. I look at that and I think, isn't that enough? I mean, his Holy Spirit is enough. He goes, yeah, it's pretty impressive, but there's more. There's more to come. But for now, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who's not going to come and go, who's not going to just come alongside, but who's going to come and take up residence within. And this Holy Spirit, he's going to speak to us. He's going to encourage us. So that when, when we're having a difficult day and we're struggling through the, the, the life and what's happening to us, the Holy Spirit can be right there to encourage us. Can begin to direct us, but then to empower us as well to fulfill that what he's asking of us. So that's our inheritance. Well, the next phrase goes on to say that we've been predestined predestined according to his purpose. Now, again, whenever we see this word predestined, I find that Christians sort of lose their head. They just sort of go mentally dumb for a moment here because what they do is they, they read the word predestined and they've been taught over and over again, predestined to salvation. And they just stop reading and they just start to import salvation into the passage. The word here predestined shows up six times in the New Testament. And whenever you see the word predestined, you always have to keep reading to see what have you been predestined to. That's really important. So we saw earlier in Ephesians 1.5 that we've been predestined not to salvation, but predestined to the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. The, the moment at salvation, God's plan was you're going to get a new body and I've determined that that's going to happen. That's what God's saying. That's what you've been predestined to. In Romans 8, you've been predestined, predetermined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's Romans 8, 28 and 29. And so God has a plan. He began that work. He began that plan again at the moment of salvation to further conform you and I into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the key here. So we have to understand, what have we been predestined to? We've been predestined according to God's purpose. According to God's will, God has a plan and he's going to work this plan out. We don't understand the plan. We don't see the plan. We think we've blown the plan from time to time. The good news is you can't do any of that because God is working everything out. He's working out your failures, your shame, your sin, other people's failures, your successes, everything working towards his ultimate purpose. And, and really to understand what we have to do is we have to look at back at the verse so the next slide, to the praise of his glory. Was there a verse in there with a red circle on it? No. All right. In the verse here, it says that, that we have, he's working things out according to his purpose, to the end. That's the key here. What's to the end? What's the purpose he's trying to do? That we'd glorify that we would be a praise to him. That's really what he's trying to get at here. So we need to understand now, what does it mean to praise God? How do we, how do we glorify God? How do we bring him praise? That's really important for us to understand and because that's really what he's trying to work out. So let's think about what that has typically been 
understood as, how it's been typically taught in terms of the messages I've heard and some of the books I've read. And when I talk with Christians, it often comes down to basically this phrase. What are you doing for Jesus? Because whatever you do, that's what's going to bring him praise. So if you're doing good things, if you're helping and you're serving in the church, if you're giving, if you're sharing the gospel with the lost, if you're avoiding sin, if you are, you know, have a good marriage and your kids are under control, if you're avoiding using foul language, if you're not watching those programs on TV that you shouldn't be watching, and if you're not listening to Justin Bieber, right? If you're avoiding those bad, sinful, evil behaviors, then you're going to somehow glorify God. The problem is you're the one doing it. You're the one pulling it off. And, and God's thinking way bigger than that. Because see, if I do it, who ultimately gets the glory? It'd be me. There's no way around it. I mean, think of it this way. And, you know, in this, um, in the spring, we saw the Toronto Raptors go off to this great championship. And, and I, I still remember game seven against Philadelphia. Kawhi Leonard hits that last second shot, throws it up there, bounces around and finally goes down. Who made the shot? Kawhi Leonard. Imagine in the postgame interview, he says, I want to give the glory to Ross Gilbert because he really helped me in that. Is there any truth that I played a part in that? No, he made the shot. Is anyone going to believe that I get credit for the shot? No, because Kawhi Leonard made the shot. He did it. He gets the glory. Well, the same is true. If I do something for God, God doesn't get glorified. I would. But that's not what he's after. What God is after is that he would be glorified through us. And the only way that that's going to happen, the only possibility that I can bring glory to God is for Jesus to do it through me. So listen to this verse in Hebrews 11, verse six, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Without faith, without trusting and depending and relying on the person of Jesus Christ, I cannot please God. I cannot glorify God. I cannot praise him. You see, do you understand that you can live a really good, upright, you know, well-behaved life without Jesus? Do you understand that? I mean, think about it. How many, how many of you, show, raise your hand, if you know an unbeliever who's a really nice person, who's nicer than some Christians? His hands went up higher after that one, right? I mean, we know a lot of people who don't know Jesus, but they're really nice people. But it doesn't glorify God one bit. Because they're simply doing it out of their own strength. It just shows they have nice looking flesh. Whereas some, or some believers we know have some not so nice looking flesh. But the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible. It says that in Romans 8. And so instead, what he's looking for is for you and I to trust him. To rely upon him. And Colossians 1, beginning in verse 25 to 27, Paul says this, that of this church, I've been made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. People like Moses never saw it. Samuel couldn't even have dreamed of it. Elijah had no clue. King David never really experienced it. 
So it's been hidden from them, but now it's been manifested to his saints. This morning, the saints of New Life Fellowship, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Here it is. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope that we have, the only hope we have of glorifying God is all based on this phrase, Christ in you. The fact that Jesus Christ lives in us, that's what he's looking for. He's not looking for what I can do for him. Rather, he's saying, will you trust me, Ross, so that I can live my life through you and do what only I can do? See, I, my whole life, I've wanted to do the right thing. My whole life, I wanted to be good and help people. And I just, that was what I was, was my desire, as long as I can remember. But time and time again, I have come to the realization that I can't do that which I want to do. That I don't have the ability, I don't have the power to pull off everything I want to do. I can't be the husband I want to be. I can't be the father I want to be. I can't be the the counselor, the teacher, the pastor, the friend. I can't be any of that to what I want to be. I lack the power. I lack the compassion. I lack the strength. I lack the, the peace. That's just it. I simply lack the power. And if Joy were here, she'd probably say amen. The good news is God isn't asking of me to do that. He's not saying it's up to you, Ross. Now make it happen. Instead, what he's doing is he's put his life inside of me to pull it off. He's going to be the power and the ability. So when you see me loving someone, really what you're seeing is Christ in and through me. So when I go and I love someone trusting in the power of Jesus, was it Jesus or me doing it? What was the answer? Yes. The answer is yes. It was Jesus Christ through the person of me that was able to pull that off. And thereby he gets the glory because he did it. He's the source of all that. First Peter four verses, verse 11 says this, whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. He's the words. He's the power. He's the source. Why? So that if he did it, he gets the glory. Not me. It was what Christ did through me. So we used this illustration a few weeks ago about trying to kind of get this idea that he's the power of that. And I used this illustration of a light bulb. And remember the light bulb, this idea that if I had just a light bulb up here, it is useless. It does nothing on its own. It requires something. It requires power to run through that light bulb. If it's old incandescent, it would need that power to run across that wire, causing that wire to heat up and go bright. And suddenly now that light bulb can produce light. And so that light bulb is now fulfilling its desire and its mandate, but it required the power to pull that off. Another illustration might be like a wind instrument, a flute or a clarinet or a saxophone. On its own, it's useless. 
It's a giant paperweight. That's about all it can do. But now if you blow through it, if, a, if some airflow goes through it, now it's able and capable of producing a beautiful noise. And it's able to fulfill its ultimate purpose. Well, the, the electricity, the wind, the source of power, that's Jesus. And as he's flowing through us, we're producing that light. We're producing that beautiful noise. And Jesus is being glorified in all that. So whatever you say, let they be the utterances of God. Let them be Jesus speaking through you. Ask him, Jesus, what do you want to say in this moment? And sometimes Jesus gives you a word and says, here's how you can encourage the person. Or here's a question that might really unlock what they're struggling with. Or more often than not, he says, just be quiet. Just listen to them. Try to understand where they're coming from. And maybe, maybe just communicate to them how much you love them by listening. And then he might say, now I want you to go and do something. I want you to go and, and make breakfast or go make your bed or, or I want you to go and talk to your neighbor and invite your neighbor into, into knowing who I am and building a relationship there so that you can come and one day maybe share the gospel with them. And that's terrifying and it's scary. And God says, I know, but don't worry, you're not going alone. That my life will be inside of you. My life will empower you to pull all that off. And so by doing so, he is glorified and all that. And so then I think of a verse like Philippians 2 and verse 13. For God is in you, both to will and to do according to his pleasure, his good purpose. And you see, that's how we glorify God. By trusting in him, moment by moment. Now you might say, well, I don't, I don't know how to trust him. I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know what to do with that. And my answer to you is, I think you do. Maybe not as well as you hope to, but all he's asking is, will you trust me as best you know how today? That's it. I, I use this illustration. It's sort of like, you know, my, my, my son, you know, Caleb was here earlier. He's, he's going into grade two and, and he reads, not great, but he reads around what you would expect from a grade one, grade two. I wouldn't expect him to read at a grade eight level. I most certainly wouldn't expect him to read at a university level. I'd expect him to read as a grade six or a, a six-year-old, seven-year-old, grade one, grade two. That's where he's at. And so God isn't expecting university faith from all of us. All he's saying is, will you trust me as best you know how today? That's what I'm after. Because the simple act of trust, the simple act of depending upon me, that's what glorifies me. Because it says that you're looking to me. And that's what I'm after. That's what I want. So then the last phrase there is that we've been sealed in him, the pledge of our inheritance, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And that word there, seal, really is a, again, going back to first century Roman times, it's a, a picture of ownership. That what God has done is he has bought us. He has purchased us and he owns us now. That's, that's such a, a relief to me. Because now it's no longer how, whole, how tightly, how big am I holding on to God? Now he's, he's marked me. I belong to him now. He owns me. And can anyone take me out of that ownership? No. It's a safe place now to be. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We now belong to him. He's purchased us. So let's see how it all looks when we put it together. Right? We've, we've obtained an inheritance, this glorious future to come where there's no more sorrow, no more sin, no more shame, and we're free, and it's guaranteed it belongs to us. It's coming, and there's hope in that, to know that, that this is not the end goal of all of it. This is not what it's about. It doesn't mean that I don't try to you know, improve life here and help others and alleviate suffering and so forth, but this is not all there is to be. There's something greater. And, and some have argued, well, that's so you know, futuristic thinking that, that you're going to, you know, so heavily minded, you're no earthly good. And, and that's the problem with faith. And that's the problem with religious people is they're, they're always looking forward to heaven. They miss out on the now. But the truth be told, because there is something greater, I can be more invested in the now. You see, if there is nothing greater to come and this is all it is, then eat, drink and be merry. Steal, kill, rob, and destroy. Be selfish. Get as much as you can now. Look after yourself because YOLO, you only live once. But that's not the case. We have something even better to come. So we've obtained an inheritance that God has guaranteed to us. He's worked it all out. He's going to use all the situation, the circumstances, the people around you, what you're up against, the trials and tribulations, so that you can be a glory to him so that you can trust him through all those things and his name be praised. And that's what gives him that glory. And to pull all of that off, to enable that to happen, he's given you a down payment on that that inheritance. The first part of it, which is the Holy Spirit, who now owns you, who resides in you, and you in him. Heavenly Father, We thank you for all that you've given us, all that you've done. And so we bless your name. We praise your name for being new people, new creations in Christ. And Father, teach us to trust you. Teach us to rely not on our own strength, but to trust in the life of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit who now takes up residence inside of us. Teach us to experience life in a new way that we never even dreamed possible. That we would be able to to support and love one another, encourage one another, and that this world would see you and be drawn to you. In your name we pray, amen.